You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Joseph Marks, and I'm here today with a fascinating guest, Rick Prado. I hope I'm saying that correct, Rick. We didn't have a chance to talk beforehand. Uh, he had a career as a covert CIA operative traveling the world uh, from everything to uh, the Contras in Nicaragua to the War on Terror. He has released a book recently, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA, CIA Shadow Warrior. Um, and we are delighted to have him here today. We'll, we'll hear about his history and also his take on recent uh, events in Ukraine. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So before we get into the book, I want to talk about the events of just this last week in Ukraine. You said this week that uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine was not surprising to you. Why is that? Well, if you look at the uh, Russian ethos starting back even through uh, before communism, but definitely after uh, you know, so 1917, they have been an expansionistic, controlling element and that is their philosophy. I mean, we had Stalin, we had Khrushchev, and now we have Putin and everybody else in between. So uh, it was no surprise to me because that's what is expected of, of communism. They, they, they want world domination and they want to f take away the basic rights of freedoms. You bring up an interesting point. I mean, you spent the first part of your career as a, a real cold warrior working in Nicaragua and elsewhere. Um, how is the Putin regime we're dealing with today different from the Soviet regime that you spent so much time combating? Well, you know, I mean, he's uh, he's very aggressive at this stage, but until recently, it, it was textbook. It was the same thing. Using Cuba as a surrogate, uh, they would bring in weapons to Nicaragua. That's one of the operations that I interdicted. Uh, and those, some of those weapons were also going to El Salvador uh, to try to foment an insurgency there. So, you know, they have been involved in Venezuela, they have been involved in Bolivia, they have been involved in a lot of other places. So none of this is new. It is what they do. Uh, if Putin is successful in occupying Ukraine, should we expect him to stop there or is the goal to reform the old Soviet Union? You know, I would imagine that uh, he's going to lick his wounds uh, if he's lucky enough to uh, take the Ukraine completely. Uh, and then he'll stop there temporarily. Uh, we call that creeping normalcy. You know, they take a piece of something and they wait to, for the world to forget what they did and then they can do it again. And sadly, our attention span in, uh, in the Western world is pretty much that of a gnat. Uh, well, well put. The U.S. and the European Union have imposed some pretty punishing sanctions so far. Is there more that we should be doing? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm glad to see that there's more of a coalition on this, and it's not just the U.S. being a running point on this, even though we are the, the, the lead. Um, I think that there's a lot more that we could do without getting directly involved in, in the fight, uh, providing them intelligence, providing them materials that they need. You know, uh, the, it, logistics is what, what experts really practice, not tactics. So, you know, we need to be able to resupply these individuals so they don't, you know, our, the Ukrainian allies, so they don't end up like that Russian convoy that's stuck there on the road because they're out of, out of food and out of fuel. What's the CIA's role in all of this? 
Well, obviously, I mean, with, with any country that is surrounding uh, Russia the, the way it is and that has been on the kind of threat that uh, Ukraine has been, we have been um, confident uh, that we are good partners with them in the intelligence collection in the sense of teaching them what to do, preparing them, sharing with them the things that are applicable. And, uh, and, and a more um, stiffening um, angle is, is using some of our trained paramilitary guys, whether it's from the, our own agency or, or our special operations forces, to train up the, uh, the quality of, of the, the, the Ukrainian soldier, making them a better soldier, uh, better equipped, uh, better trained, and then with a lot more intelligence so they can act on it. Uh, you said this week that you don't believe there are CIA special forces operating in Ukraine right now, but that back in your day, they, they might have been. They might have been there for months uh, doing training. What's yeah, changed? It, and it, what we... Well, I, I, yeah, what, what, the, what the reality is that I am sure, I'm confident, and I hope that it was the case, that our guys have been in the Ukraine training and, and providing intelligence and providing support. Uh, they could continue to do that, but not from the front lines, obviously, because that is—it's not—we're not ready for that. Or should we be co even considering? So, uh, yeah, they—they are—they've been involved for months, if not years. So, get into your book. What is a, a shadow warrior? You know, um, we work in the shadows. Uh, we are our unsung heroes. Uh, that is the impetus for me writing the book was that I got very, very tired of, of seeing how my agency is maligned and more importantly, how my, my brethren are, are portrayed. You know, we're always that maniacal assassin, backstabbing, double dealing, uh, doing things illegally behind enemies back and movies like um, American May I Made. And, and, that, and that hurts me because, you know, Joseph, we have 137 stars on our wall of men and women who sacrificed their lives for God and country, unsung heroes. The majority of those stars are actually anonymous. And some of those, a third of those stars are post 9-11. And some of the people after 9-11, I personally knew they were my colleagues. So I believe that we owe them a debt of honor to at least be able to portray them in, in a more realistic light. And that's what, what, what Black, Black Ops is. is Real CIA operations, as sexy as they may be, but they're still real, uh, but they're not Jason Bourne. And they're done by real CIA operations officers. Why has the, the picture that the average American has of what the CIA does and what covert actions are, why is that distorted in your mind? Well, I, you know, the, the, my agency is... Uh, um, phobic of the media, which is a mistake. Uh, we need to deal with things in a positive way. And by us not talking to them about the things that we can talk, um, it, it leaves a vacuum that Hollywood media fills in. And that's what people learn. People are educated by movies and TV shows and, 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 and that kind of uh, activities. That's all there is. So our agency has to do better. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I'm very proud and happy to see was that how much they literally left in my book. Because there was a lot of things I thought they were gonna cut out and they didn't. And I attribute to that to the fact that I, from the very beginning told them what my goal was. My goal was to paint the agency in the proper light. Don't get me wrong, in the book, I, you know, if something is wrong and it was done wrong, I do bring it out with, with names. But 
for my, my brethren to be represented to the Americans in a way that people go, you know, if, you're, if your son comes to you and says, Daddy, Daddy, I want to join the CIA, your first reaction is not to send them to therapy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this really is a, a full, fascinating journey that takes you from uh, Nicaragua to, uh, you know, other Latin American nations to the war on terror. Can you tell us just a little inside baseball about the process of getting this through CIA approval? What are they looking for? And what do you have to do to get a book like this out? Well, it's, it's the, the Production Review Board is a department in the agency that handles anything that is public. Like if I was going to do a uh, an op piece on the Washington Post, I, got, I have to clear it with them. Books, of course, they have to look at them and they send them to the subject matter experts. In the case of my book, as you stated, I started out in... in, in pro-insurgencies to counter-insurgencies to counter-terrorism with Cold War stuff in between. So it has to go to different components. The chief of that component looks at what I am writing, and what they're looking for is anything that I say that can compromise former operations, or more importantly, the identities of some of our assets. And obviously, we, we took very good care of not doing that. And as you yourself just mentioned, one of the stories is an unnamed Latin American country, and the same thing with the uh, the radical Muslim uh, African country where I was chief of station. Uh, so, the beginning of your career was was in Nicaragua, working for the Contras, who were uh, fighting against the uh, socialist Sandinista government. There, you say in the book that uh, the Contras crusade became my crusade. What does that mean? Well. You got to understand, I'm Cuban-born. I saw what happened to my family and to my first country under the uh, the communist uh, regime of Castro, the uh, the assassinations, the uh, the prosecutions, the destruction of family life. Church uh, was the first thing that they closed down with our churches and kicked out the priests. So for me, seeing that as as a ten year old and then coming to this wonderful country, turning eleven at an orphanage. Um, I, I knew right away that this was the place to be. I saw what the difference is between post-Castro Cuba and what the United States has to offer. So fast forward now, I am the man in the camps. For the first 14 months of the three the years that I was there, I was the only CIA officer allowed in the camps because I could pass off as a non-American. So imagine the pleasure of seeing individuals that have the same story that I had. I used to every night grab a cup of coffee and go sit down with uh, with some of the different countries, not the leaders, the, the actual fighters, and ask them. I said, why are you here? Not a single one said, well, you know, I read Marx and Lenin, and I don't believe in that ideology. It was all personal. They raped my daughter. They closed down my church and beat up my priests. They forced conscripted my 15-year-old into service. It was all personal. It was very visceral. And for a kid that saw this monster, this octopus, as I call it, that is that is Russia, communism, and being in a position to help cut some of those tentacles, that was very rewarding. And I, I even though I was in very rough conditions there well, for, for many, many months, uh, I never once woke up in the morning and said, oh, man, what am I doing here? Or I got to go to work. That never happened. Yeah, you have this amazing personal story where, as you say, 10 years old, Castro came to power, um, seized your family coffee uh, plantation, and you ended up coming to the United States alone before your family spending eight months in an orphanage. Um, how did that form 
who you were and what you wanted to do. And then for so many people who kind of came up during the Cold War, did you lose a sense of mission or did the mission change after 1989? Well, first of all, I, I do believe that that early experience uh, was what, what you know, forced my mettle to, to go in the direction that, that, that I eventually did. Um, both in, in, in the shock for, for, for a young man to have to weather a, an orphanage at the age of 10. I mean, I turned 11 in the orphanage and where discipline was harsh and so were the fights. That, that, that started hammering that, my metal and, and making it tougher. But at the end of the day, what really, really pushed it for me was I realized the debt of honor that I had to this country. My mom and dad paid the ultimate price of putting their only child in an airplane to a country that they've never been to or perhaps could never go to. And that sense of, of courage on the, on the part of my parents, especially my dad, and seeing the contrast and in, in, in then how my, when my parents came, how they became part of the American dream. And look at the career, the life that I've had. I, I couldn't, this could not be duplicated in any other country in the world. For, so for me, the first thing was purpose. I have purpose and I'm a firm believer in democracy in, 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 in the patriotism that we owe this country. To the topic that you asked about, did we take our eye off the ball uh, with, uh, we may pay more attention to communism than we should have. And the answer is yes to a degree, but that's with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, you have to understand that when terrorism came to our, to our knocking at our doors, even before 9-11, you know, we had the coal, we had the, uh, the embassy bombings. Um, all these things really made us omnifocus on the problem. And the example that I give is, you know, uh, terrorism is like getting shot. Can, uh, communism is like contracting cancer. And the first one, unless you treat it immediately and pay full attention to it, you're going to die. On the cancer, you have time, you have medical support, you have innovative capabilities, and hopefully you beat it after a period of time. So that, that became our problem. When we were seeing what was being done and suffering the consequences and getting intelligence that indicated that we were, we're going to be getting more, uh, our limited resources, let's face it, every organization has limits in, in, in budget and limits in personnel. Uh, we had to do triage. So yes, pri you know, primarily counterterrorism became our number one mission. But I assure you, that my building never turned off the, our interest in Russia or in North Korea or in China or Iran. That is something that we do in spite of whatever, you know, hair on fire moment we're having. Can you talk a little bit about what your, your daily life was like uh, working on these operations in Nicaragua? You talk about sleeping in a jungle for two or three years. How does that change you? What was your day to day like? Well, you know, it, it, like I, I would spend Monday through Friday uh, in a camp. I would go to two camps a week, um, Monday and Tuesday to one, travel on Wednesday to the next one and do the same thing, and come back to, to uh, the capital uh, in Honduras on, on Saturday morning. Um, but it, it didn't change me any. On the contrary, it just actually gave me even more reasons to be proud of what I and my colleagues are able to do for something that we believe in. So, you know, for example, you know, a jungle hammock is, is a, it's a hammock that has a, a roof over it. So if it rains, you don't get too wet and it's got mosquito netting. So you don't get the scorpions and the snakes and the mosquitoes. Um, 
that's that was my my bed Monday through Friday uh, for the better part of three years. Um, then after that, I would get up, I would, I would start training the guys where there was headspace and timing on, on, on a 50 cal RPG seven training, patrolling, zeroing in sniper rifles and giving them the intelligence that we could provide about points of interest that they may be able to go down range and exploit for us. And that was an all day process. I mean, we worked incessantly. And then at night, like I mentioned, I would socialize with with the uh, the Contras because that's what really floated my boat for being there. I, I, I felt in place and I felt appreciated. So the, the this operation became controversial once the Iran-Contra affair became out. Um, some Contras were accused of atrocities. Um, you have said that those were a limited number of people. You called them, you know, good, God-fearing people. Can you talk about what is mis- what do you believe is misunderstood about the Contras this many well, decades it, later? It, it was absolutely, you know, and, and it, it is a shame that it ended up uh, how it ended, although the, the program was successful. Let's face it. We drove the Sandinistas. We forced the Sandinistas to have democratic elections with you know, substantial overwatch, and they lost. They lost power for four years. So the program itself was successful, um, but the taint was not. The, the Contras were tainted with the Somoza angle, you know, the fact that some of them were, were Somocistas. But that was a minority, and it was primarily the, you know, the people that had you know, training because they were former military. But the 90%, if not 95% of the Contras out there were just regular civilians, a lot of them peasants, that now had to fight for their freedom because they were losing it. Have kind of, has the way the government approaches covert actions changed in the years that, that you've been involved? Yes, like, like everything else, you 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 got to grow and you got to adapt. It, and sometimes it, it, uh, it, you move in the right directions and others you don't. Um, we had a lot of liberties back then uh, in the sense of um, the, the, a very supportive uh, political uh, backing. And, and that is the biggest thing that, 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 that curtails any covert action program that we may get involved in. Uh, we, under, under Reagan, we had such strong support. And after all, our job is to collect intelligence and to do covert action for the president of the United States. That's what the CIA does. So when you have a White House that is supporting you and believes in you and trusts you, it empowers you to go and do better and it allows you to do better. When that, that coin is reversed, so is our operation. And uh, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, maybe eight years after 9-11, uh, we started forgetting about 9-11 and uh, it, it became even more political. Sadly, like the FBI, my agency has been politicized in the last years. And that is so antagonistic to who we are. The first thing that I learned when I was at the farm at the, uh, at the spy school was we don't do politics and we don't do po- uh, policy. We do collection of intelligence and covert action. Who, who's at fault? I mean, you mentioned Reagan as an example of someone you thought was a, a good president for the CIA. Are there presidents who are particularly bad or CIA directors who are particularly bad for what you wanted to do? Well, I think, you know, you have the Jimmy Carter years, which preceded uh, Reagan, and, and that is a stark contrast. I mean, uh, uh, President Carter was a wonderful human being, a very uh, devout Christian, but he was a very naive man, and he was very liberal in his thoughts and, and, and naive in, in understanding that we cannot gauge the morality of our enemy by our own morality. 
unless we're as evil as they are, we cannot, you know, do the same. And and in during Carter, we had Afghanistan, we had the Panama Canal, we you know we had the uh, the Iranian crisis where our guys were and ladies were held for 444 days, and lo and behold, in comes Reagan, and the day he gets signed signed in, they release our prisoners. Why? There was a new sheriff in town. Yeah, you talk. There's this uh, issue between toughness and morality. I was I was uh, asking a colleague about this earlier. who said, you know, the Brits will always tell you that before they do a covert action, their last question is, is it moral? And the Americans, before they do an action, their last question is, is it legal? Is that true? And, and what is the role that morality should play in covert actions? Uh, it should play a, a huge, uh, and, and it does. I mean, uh, it's not isolate, in, in isolation. But unfortunately, you know, we uh, the legalities of things for us is something that we are very vulnerable. Uh, uh, Post-event, uh, somebody could scrutinize, and if there's been an illegality, um, you could go to jail. So the lawyers are there to protect us, but our lawyers and the agency are very unique. They, our favorite lawyers is when I was in the counterterrorist uh, center, we had a guy who was the poster child, Doug, and he never said no to anything. But he would say, okay, let's see how we can make this legal and get the right permissions and the right approach and curtail this or do that. And now we can, you know, uh, uh, unleash our dogs of war and go do covert missions legally. The morality permeates the service anyway. You know, we do not assassinate people uh, for, for kicks. We do not uh, sell drugs in Los Angeles. That is not what the agency does or is. Uh, zipping forward to the war on terror, you've talked a lot about the extent to which the CIA was really following bin Laden before 9-11. Is there something that we as a nation could have done to uh, to prevent 9-11 or to get a handle on him earlier? Absolutely. You know, when when uh, when he was in Khartoum, Joseph, in, in the mid-1990s, we knew what he had for lunch. We had him under close surveillance. We have a very personal friend of mine, Billy Waugh, used to run around his compound taking pictures from a safe apartment that he had uh, above the Bin Laden compound. We knew how many fighters he had. We know what car he drove, and often he went out by himself. We knew the security was a joke for, for our operations guys to go in there and, and, and somehow capture him or, or neutralize him somehow. Uh, and we, we provided a lot of opportunities to do that, but the political will was not there. And if you imagine, if you, if we would have been allowed to somehow neutralize Bin Laden as a threat, and again, I'm not saying just killing him, but either compromising him to where he does get arrested, it's a miracle, or we abduct him and bring him to, to justice in our country, 9-11 um, probably would have happened, and neither would have the coal or, or the African embassy bombings. I want to jump to a couple of audience questions we have here. This is from... Christopher Bonavico in California. Can we work with Russian insiders to take out Putin? Well, you know, unfortunately, that's not a, a reality. Um, you have to understand that Putin, besides the, the, the amount of security that he has, just like our president, um, the people around him are in the same boat that he's in. They are like-minded and benefiting from that association. It would be very rare to have somebody so patriotic and so anti-Putin uh, 
that uh, that he would have survived the scrutiny that 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 all of us are right, in in our careers. So he you um, having the wish that somebody's going to walk up to him and put a bullet in his head. As much as I would dream of that, is I don't think it's going to happen because the people around him, if if he's dead, they're probably next. Uh, this is from William Desjardins in Arizona. I guess it's something you've talked a fair amount about. What are the pros and cons of the United States employing drone strikes in foreign countries? That's one of my pet peeves. Um, it is a tool that we have. It, you, you read the book, so you know that I actually did uh, pull the trigger on, on, on a very special op, but we knew exactly who everybody in that in that group was. The problem with the, with the drone strikes is that they're, there's, they always have collateral damage. And what, what it, the irony to me is that if you propose a program that says, okay, it's 1939, I'm going to go, and I have a way of putting a bullet into Hitler's head, people go, oh, no, no, Americans, we don't do that. You cannot do that. 49 cent bullet. However, we could take a $2 billion missile and hit a wedding to kill Abu and Abu Abba. And everybody goes, oh, bravo, we got those two guys, but we killed six of his cousins, and now those six families are also radicalized. Additionally, when we do renditions or more direct action kind of stuff, we get to exploit the intelligence in the area, the computers, the telephones, all these things are, are priceless. And if we can capture some of these guys and bring them back, then debrief them. When a drone strike hits, it's, it's, it's all, all is evaporated, including innocence. And that gets back to what you were talking about earlier, this this um, fascinating disconnect between the morality of covert operations versus the morality of drone strikes. Do you think that the U.S. would be more popular in the world right now if a lot of things done with drone strikes had been done with covert action? I think uh, we needed a much better balance. Um, the, the drone still plays a role. There are there are like in the in the case that I describe in the book. That was a very legitimate target, and it was in Afghanistan, and they were definitely Taliban. We had proven that, and, and it's a very long story. But we need to have the ability to do covert action at any given time. And the, one of the programs that I tried to start at the end of my career, or that I started at the end of my career, and didn't go too far uh, other than the approvals and, and the, uh, the, the initial uh, training and surveillance, was to try to be able to preempt and disrupt terrorist activities in the future. What I told uh, our direct lieutenant was, you cannot build your firehouse when your house is already on fire. If I would have had the programs that I was proposing at the end of my career before 9-11, because when 9-11 happened, I was the chief of operations at the counterterrorist center. If I would have had a, that, that kind of program in place and we were getting all that chatter from Al-Qaeda that they, we knew they were doing something, but just you could not pin it down. It's not like in the movies. It's not like a puzzle that you neatly put together because you know it's primarily a puzzle with half of the pieces missing. Uh, and you come to an, an, to analyze the, the, the results and then and take covert action. So the, the drone is still a viable tool to have in, in, our, in our repertoire, but our toolbox also needs people that are willing and able to carry out covert actions because our country is going to need it at one time or another. And you cannot try to build it once you've been hit. Yeah, so we're running out of time here. I just wanted to close out by asking, big picture, 
are we going in the right direction or wrong direction on U.S. intelligence activities now? I think that the the the, the biggest thing obstructing obstructing uh, intelligence and in, in, in the development of intelligence allies is the political the politicization of, of things. You know, when when people uh, see what happened in Afghanistan, for example, that all of a sudden, after all these years there, we leave people behind that were our allies and that were depending on our safety uh, for us for us for for safety. And we leave them behind. How do I go to the next liaison counterpart and go, hey, listen, trust me, um, we got your six on this. We will back you. Work, work with me on this program, and I promise you, you you're going to be better off. And then he's going to look at me and go, gee, like you mean like what you did in Afghanistan? So those political decisions that are made for political gains uh, are very detrimental to uh, both the intelligence community and the law enforcement community. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you, Rick, so much for joining us and talking about your fascinating book. Again, I'm Joseph Marks. Uh, please check out what we have coming up, all the interviews at WashingtonPostLive.com. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.